we are getting into the third section of this book. The early sections of 1 Samuel deal with Samuel himself, and then primarily with Saul. And now, for the first time in this chapter, we meet David. Now, I'm going to ask you, even before I read it, and I will ask you several times during the course of the sermon to put a suspension on all your knowledge about David. Do not import the rest of your Bible into this text, because it will prevent you from understanding what this chapter wants us to see about the work of God. So we're introduced to David, but remember, he hasn't killed Goliath yet. He's not the king, and he hasn't written one psalm. So let's look now. At 1 Samuel, chapter 16, the word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord, and invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest. But behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. 
And Saul's servants said to him, Behold, now an evil servant spirit from the Lord is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the evil spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David his son to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the evil spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the evil spirit departed from him. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you this morning for we would see Jesus. Open up your word to our eyes and to our hearts, that we would see the Lord Jesus Christ, that our lives would be changed, that we would become great followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. This morning we look at the 16th chapter in 1 Samuel, and we are introduced to David, who will soon be David the king. And we are introduced to how the Lord brings David to the kingdom. You see, oftentimes it is difficult for us to face hard circumstances because we are discouraged, we are depressed, we're not sure what to do and we can't see a way out. But this morning, as we look at this chapter, we see that God is over all things. We see three things particularly about God. First, we see that God knows. It sounds simple, but it's significant. God knows. The second thing is that God sees. That where we do not see, God sees. And then the third and important factor for us is that God controls, that the world is not a series of random events, that even in our darkest hours, God controls. God knows, he sees, and he controls. The very first thing that we see from this text is that God knows our struggles. Now, the context for this chapter, you may recall, is that all is not well in Israel. The the newspapers in Israel would have been filled with problems, with people shouting in the editorial section. After all, the kingship of Saul had not been without its problems. And there was the controversy over the sacrifice 
that Saul made in chapter 13. And then you remember the foolish vow that Saul made in chapter 14. And then, of course, there was the great confrontation between Saul and Samuel in chapter 15. Also remember that the world in which we find ourselves was a very dangerous place. Enemies continued to surround Israel. And the Philistines, especially, we are told, were always looking for a conflict with Israel. In chapter 14, verse 52, we are told that the Philistines were hostile and fought with Israel all the days of Saul. Now, it would be easy for not only the Israelites, but for us to focus on how bad things were. Now, isn't isn't that a temptation that comes to us? When we hear the news, what do we focus on? How bad things are. When we read reports, we think it's just a matter of time before everything falls apart. We worry about all of the things in our world because we're convinced that they are getting worse and will never get better. There is even a strain of theology that desires to convince us that it's a good thing that things are getting worse and worse and worse and less and less and less godly because somehow that makes Jesus' return sooner. It's easy to focus on all the problems. At the same time, it appears at this point that God is absent in Israel. Now, the past history of Israel has shown that God has brought about discipline for Israel and her leaders. And they would have known that God was not exactly on board with the plan to have a king. And by now... They would have also known that God had announced that Saul had been stripped of his kingdom. But there would have been no obvious place to turn for an answer. Saul is actually still still sitting on his throne. Now what does that mean? How will God fix this for them? Now, that feeling can come over you and me as well, can't it? It doesn't involve Saul, but it might involve a leader. It doesn't involve a war with the Philistines, but we have plenty of our own conflicts, don't we? And we may ask ourselves, how will God fix this? And when it's not fixed, we wonder where God is. And what's he doing? Has he decided to take a vacation? Is he asleep at the switch? What exactly is going on here? And so we see it in verse 1. In the person of Samuel. Samuel seems gripped by depression and grief. The Lord actually comes to Samuel and he says, How long will you grieve over Saul? Now, I think this is instructive to us. Samuel is the leader of Israel. He is the man of God who has God's word. And he is gripped in a deep grief and depression. This verse alone, this passage shows us that if someone tries to tell you, if you are a real Christian, you should be happy all the time. You should never be discouraged. You should never be depressed. If you are, then you're not really a real good Christian. You might ask them, what about Samuel? Samuel was looking out at a black world. 
It seemed to swallow him up. And he was withdrawn within himself. Samuel had this struggle and God saw it. Now Samuel's struggle, we should also understand, was a proper struggle. Because he was not struggling about some temporary problem. He was also not struggling about some material goods that he didn't have. No, Samuel's struggle was for the safety of God's people. Samuel's struggle was what God's people's safety meant for the glory of God's name. Samuel's struggle was for the spiritual collapse of their king. He was appropriately grieved and struggling. Now, we might ask ourselves, do we struggle with these kinds of things? Do we struggle with where God's people are at? Do we struggle with wanting to see the glory of God in our world? Do we struggle with the spiritual state of those around us? You see, it's easy to focus on our own well-being. It's easy to focus on the political that is around us. But do we focus on God's presence in the church? Is that our focus? Do we focus on the spiritual well-being of our leaders, our fathers, our families? You see, this is a good and appropriate struggle, and the Lord sees it. But the Lord does not leave us in those struggles. That's also what verse 1 is about as well. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve? But then he gives an answer. He says, fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. You see, the Lord doesn't leave us in those struggles if we are willing to listen to him. Notice what God does here. He doesn't tell Samuel Nothing is wrong. He doesn't tell Samuel to just cheer up and not worry about it. He also doesn't tell Samuel that he needs to do better. Samuel, if you just get your act together, you can get past this. Be braver. Do better. No, what the Lord actually does is he opens up his plan to Samuel. Because God knows not only our struggles, God knows his plans. The true difference here is the Word of God. You see, it's God's Word that brings comfort in the midst of grief. It's God's Word that brings faith where there's fear. It's God's Word that brings hope where there's darkness. You see, God says to Samuel, and He says to us today, you don't need to grieve because it's not over. I'm still at work. You see, we need reminding that God is in control of events, that events are not in control of us, that God knows His plans and His purposes. He knows what His people do not. Samuel can't see a way forward. That's why the blackness is surrounding Samuel. But God can. Look with me. At verse 1. 
God says, I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Now, this word provided here is an interesting word. It's used throughout this chapter and translated in different ways. One of the main translations for this verb is to see. And we see that over and over again in the chapter. Man sees. God sees. But here God says, I have provided a king. Now, the importance of this is this. It's not as if God is caught by surprise with Saul's failure. And he's scrambling around and he says, Samuel, don't worry about it. I'll scrape the bottom of the barrel. Somehow I'll come up with a king and I'll provide him for you. That's not what God's saying. What God is saying is, I see my king. That's who I will provide. I know. I see. God is able to provide a new beginning even when everything seems at a loss. Now this is everyday comfort for you and for me. Because you see, we have a temptation to think that life is overwhelming. Because if we're honest with ourselves, bad things happen. We get sick. We have problems in our marriage. We can have financial difficulties. We cannot be able to control our children. We don't get into that college we wanted to get into. We're not sure we're going to get a spouse that we want. And life can seem overwhelming. And in the world today, there is a temptation to normalize giving up. All throughout the world, people are told, well, if you're suffering and in pain, just give up and die. If you're not sure of your future, just give up and die. But God says, don't ever give up, because I can make a new beginning. So, I don't know all of the struggles that all of you are facing. But I can tell you with certainty from God's word that he would tell you, do not give up. There is always hope with the Lord. That's what Samuel needed to hear. He needed the Lord to break him out of the fog of darkness that had been surrounding him. God never loses control. He is always our hope because he knows his plans. But even here, God sees our weakness. In verse 2, after Samuel has been told to go to Bethlehem, Samuel responds that he's afraid. How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. We see a little bit later that the elders at Bethlehem are scared to death. You can just imagine. They're chattering teeth. They're shaking hands as they come to the gate. Samuel, um, you're not coming here to like slap us upside the head, are you? God's not going to rain fire down us because of some sin. You you come in peace, don't you? You see, God sees this. Samuel is the same man, the last chapter, who walked up to King Saul and in his face said, your kingdom has been taken from you. And now... He's afraid to go to a backwater village because Saul might find out and come after him. What's going on here with Samuel? You see, he's afraid 
Because he can't see past his immediate situation. But instead, God provides for our weakness. You see what God does here in verses 2 and 3. He tells Samuel to take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I shall show you what you are to do. Now, God gives Samuel cover for this trip. Now, some commentators don't like this. They see this as God encouraging Samuel to lie, to sin, and that that's bad. But as we look at the text, is Samuel going to sacrifice? Yes. Is Samuel going to tell Jesse and the people of Bethlehem that he's going to sacrifice? Yes. So where's the lie? God has said to Samuel, you have now two purposes to go to Bethlehem. And you don't need to tell everyone under the sun all of your purposes. Saul does not need this piece of information. He's under judgment. He's a sinner. And we certainly don't want to give Saul information that would cause him to sin. So there's no lying going on at all here. This also helps the elders of Bethlehem. Now they can kind of calm down. Because could you imagine, these men are shaking in their boots just to see Samuel. Could you imagine if Samuel led with, yeah, I'm here to pick somebody from your town to replace Saul. Oh. And when does Saul's army get here to completely destroy the town? You know, you could just imagine. So God is meeting both Samuel and the elders in the midst of their weakness. Now, what happens is, a choice is before us. Who will be the next king? Again, let's forget the rest of the book of 1 Samuel. We don't know who the next king is going to be. We don't even know how he's going to be chosen. Now, there has been a history of choosing here in Israel, hasn't there? And it hasn't exactly worked out too well. Israel chose the ark to bring before them to go to battle with the Philistines. And they were defeated. Israel had chosen to have a king. And we saw how well that worked out. So now, who's going to do the choosing? You see, if we take a step back here, we might say, well, that's because Hophni and Phinehas were in charge of the ark, and they didn't know what they're doing. And that's because the elders of Israel hadn't really followed the Lord, so that's why they wanted a king. If we just find the right guy, if we just let Samuel be in charge, he'll make the right choice. After all, he's a man of God, right? Let's let Samuel choose. There's only one problem with this. Samuel's not immune to being a man. And so we see here in verse 6, when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Now, think about this for a minute. After all Samuel has been through, he's about ready to repeat the mistake of chapter 9 and verse 2. Because you remember Saul, right? 
Saul looked every part of the king. He was Mr. Israel. Tall, dark, and handsome. Right? Well, here, Eliab may not be Mr. Israel, but I bet you he is the captain of the varsity football team at Bethlehem University. He probably goes about 6'2", 225, 230. I bet his 40-yard dash is pretty good as well. He looks every part a king. He looks like the warrior king that Israel needs, except for there's only the problem of picking by appearance. It's the same mistake Israel made before. That's exactly who Saul was. He looked every part the king. Because you see, God tells us, man looks on the appearance, but God sees the heart. It is not a coincidence that those verbs are the same verb as God will provide a king. God sees where we do not see. God sees our own short-sightedness. He knows that even Samuel will make the right choice. And so, as Samuel is all about ready to open up his horn and oil Eliab down, God says, no, I've rejected it. And then, it's almost like a comedy of errors. Okay, it's not Eliab. Bring the next one out. Bring a bit of dab out. Nope. How about Shema? Nope. And they just keep coming by. Sons of Jesse, three, four, five, six. Keep coming on down. No. Now, at this point, you can imagine that Samuel and probably Jesse are a bit concerned. They might be frustrated. Because they don't know what to do. And for Samuel, the Lord has not just said to him, your choice is wrong. He has said that the way of choosing that you are taking up is wrong. You remember that God's provision of a king was one he saw. God tells us that he looks past the appearance. He looks to the substance, to the heart. Because after all, Saul did not fail because of his appearance. He was big. He was strong. He was a warrior. He failed because of his heart. And God could see that. Now once again here this morning, providentially, there is an immediate application for us. Because right now, out in our lobby, are forms on which you can nominate men for the office of elder or deacon. And this principle applies in the church today. We are tempted to look at a man and say, well, he's a very successful businessman. He would probably be very helpful in helping to run the church. Or this man, he could do anything with his hands. He could fix anything. He should be a deacon because he can repair things. But you see, we're not to look on the appearance. We're to look at the heart. The questions you should not be asking yourself are, is this man good at business? Does this man bring children who are well-dressed and well-behaved to sit in pews? The question you should be asking yourself is, is this man a man of prayer? Is this man a man of God's word? Does he long to be in the scriptures? Is this man a man of service? Does he encourage other people? Does he 
bring His gifts of mercy and hospitality to bear to build the body up. You see, God wants us to look at the heart, not at the appearance. And God makes this difference very obvious in our passage this morning. You can almost, as I said, see the frustration of Jesse. And Samuel is looking around saying, there's got to be a son around here, somebody. God told me to ordain somebody. Who am I going to anoint? Now, think about this for a moment. In Jesse's eyes, David is so insignificant, Jesse hasn't even told Samuel about him. You remember I warned you not to think about future David. Present David doesn't even get a name in our passage yet. And so what happens is, Samuel says, there's got to be another son. And Jesse says, well, there's the youngest. There's nothing special about him at all. He's just out with the sheep. Now, don't let your Bible knowledge color your way of looking at this passage. If I can be blunt, you would not have picked David. You would have leaned toward Eliab or one of the other men. You would have said, okay, God, second round here. Maybe you missed. Maybe you, maybe you didn't see who this was. Let's try to go through him again one more time. Right? Not the runt of the litter. Not the guy who's out with the sheep. Not the youngest of the whole clan. It can't be him. Now, what I don't want you to do is to take from this that God thinks that appearance is bad. It's not as if God wants to find the ugliest of people. Because this passage describes David to us, and he's described as being relatively attractive. He's called ruddy, which is a good quality in those days. He has beautiful eyes. And we know from his future as the king that women kind of fawn over him. So it's not that God wants to find somebody who's bad in appearance. It's that appearance actually means nothing. It's all the heart. We should remember this when we think of our worth. Because you see, what the world wants to do is to tell you all of your worth and value is in your appearance. Don't think so? What kind of house do you have? What kind of car do you drive? How much money do you have in the bank? What kind of suit do you wear? How expensive is it? What do you look like at your work? What position do you hold? You see, the world is all about appearance. And what God is telling us is that our worth is found in our substance, in the heart. That's what God looks for. You are not a failure if you are living hand to mouth, as long as you are working hard to provide. You are not a failure if you are not on the cover of a fashion magazine. God looks at the heart. Now, could there ever have been a greater case of choosing against appearance than the Lord Jesus Christ? Isaiah chapter 53 tells us that Jesus is without form or majesty or beauty. He was seen as being ordinary. One of the problems was in his hometown, he was just like us. There's nothing special about Jesus. 
Do you remember he did not come from any famous city? In John chapter 1, it was actually said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He was not the kind of king that they were looking for. They wanted a king, a warrior king, to ride in on a charger and to defeat the Romans. They did not want a suffering servant. You see, Jesus came against all appearances. But his value was found in his substance. Something that the Lord knew. We need to trust the Lord in his choices. We need to rejoice that he delights in the weak and in the obscure. Because this shows his glory, not ours. The next thing we see is that God is in control. That God is in control of our ministry. And we see this in the person of David. David may be God's choice. But it is not his natural abilities that God is after. Again, do not import your knowledge into this text. It's not as if God said, Well, I know that David is going to be strong enough to kill Goliath, so I'm going to pick him. No. God chooses David because of his heart. And all of the things that David does after this point are a product of the grace of God, not his own natural abilities. Right now, David is simply a young man who stinks of sheep. That's who David is. But then something remarkable happens when he is anointed. The Spirit of God rushes on David, and God brings about those qualities that he desires in David by the power of his Spirit. This is true today in his church. God desires certain qualities in his servants, including you. And he gives those qualities through the sending of his spirit. He does not expect you to carry your share of the load. He does not expect you to do something to please him. He sends His Spirit to equip you to bring about those qualities that He desires in you. It is all of grace. David is fit to be the king because God has equipped him to be the king. And what a sharp contrast we are shown here in verse 13 and verse 14. Saul had previously had the Spirit act upon him in chapter 10. And in chapter 11, but now the Spirit of God has departed from him. Saul is no longer fit to be the king because the Spirit of God has departed from him. Instead, he is terrorized. He is tormented. He is troubled by a judgment that God has placed upon him. This is the troublesome spirit. It's not as if God sent a demon to Saul in a wicked, evil way. He sent an evil, troubling spirit to trouble and torment Saul because of his rejection of the Lord. And this is the worst possible thing that could ever happen. To have God's spirit withdrawn. Far too often we look both in our families and in the church for some kind of magic bullet to fix things. When the truth is, it is only by the Spirit of God that the church will ever have any success. 
It is only by the Spirit of God that families will be strengthened. It is God's Spirit that empowers us. Remember, God sees here what we do not. To man's eye, Saul is still king. Nothing has changed. We might even think that God's doing nothing about the situation. David does not take over power now. And our impatience at this text could see God doing nothing. But you see, also from the text, we see that God is at work, and we need to apply that principle to our lives. Just because things aren't moving along at the pace that we want them to, just because resolution doesn't come when we want it to, does not mean God is absent. It means that God's in control. And he'll bring things about in his own time. The Lord is in control of our ministry. But we're also privileged here to see God at work. We may ask ourselves, at this point in the text, how is God going to do this? How will David come to power? How will he be trained to be the king? How will Saul be removed from power? How is this going to come about? And once again, just like the story of Moses in the river. Do you remember that story? How is a leader going to possibly be trained up to face Pharaoh? It would take somebody, I don't know, who lived in the palace and was was trained in all the arts of the Egyptians. How could that possibly ever happen? What happens when God makes Pharaoh take Moses in? It's the same thing that happens here. How could David learn about the palace? How could he learn about being king? How could he know what is right and what is wrong? How could he observe? Well, God will bring David to the throne. And see how God delights in doing the marvelous? It's not as if God whisks David up and plants him in the palace. No. What happens here is God's work of sending a tormenting spirit upon Saul drives this action. And those who are around Saul understand this and they see it. Now they should know from the confrontation with Samuel and just being around Saul that this is a deep-seated spiritual problem. But they're not really interested in trying to get Saul to repent They're not really interested in fixing the root of the problem. All they want to do is smooth things over. And so because in the days of 1 Samuel, they don't have a smartphone with an app that can play babbling brooks or the wind going through the trees, they get the next best thing. They get someone to come in and play the lyre. But it's the same basic principle. It's soothing sounds to calm the king. And they wonder, well, Who could this possibly be in all the villages, in all the lands of all of Israel? What lyre player could we possibly find? I don't know. David? Do you see what God does here in this text? One of the men says, you know, there's this guy. He's a son of Jesse. I think he might be good for the the job. I'm not even sure we need to set up an ad. Let's Let's just get him. And then Saul sends word 
do you see the word that Saul sends? He doesn't say, Jesse, send me this son of yours that I've heard about as a young man. What does he say? Send me David, the one with the sheep. You see, David's not only chosen by God, he's chosen by Saul, by name. Do you see the emphasis here, how God works in his providence? He brings David to the court, and in a marvelous way, he brings about a fix. This shows us that God is in complete control of everything that is going on. Now, we must also remember that this is not a fairy tale. That God's equipping of David and calling him to this task does not come without a cost. David will spend many lonely nights on the run. David will be hunted. He will be in warfare. He will be betrayed. It does not mean an immediately happy and perfect life for David. But it is the life that God has given to him and equipped him for to build up the kingdom of the Lord. The Lord never promises us an easy way. What he does promise is that he will never leave us nor forsake us. Now again, where could this be more evident than in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ? The Lord knew exactly what he was doing. Jesus was equipped for the task before him. The issue was never in doubt, but the outcome came through pain and suffering, didn't it? If that is the way of Jesus, how can we expect to be better than him? As you look at your life and as you look at the world, do not be dishonest about reality. The world can be a dark and foreboding place. But do not only look at appearances. Remember that the Lord knows us. Remember that the Lord sees truth and reality. And remember that the Lord controls the future. We can trust in Him. He is the same great God and King today that He was in the days of David. Let's pray.